That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and, were, chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, as slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Lord God, uh, this amazing, beautiful story from the Gospel of Luke. I pray that for us today, it would not just be something that happened, but something that happens in our midst, that you, Lord Jesus, would be our companion, that you would come and open your word to us, and that you would do as you do every week and meet us at your table. We pray, Lord, that you would be made known to us in the breaking of the bread. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, welcome to St. Bart's. Uh, this is the third Sunday in Easter. We are still in the Easter season. Uh, and it's important to remember that the Easter season is 50 days. Uh, the 50 days of feasting outstrips the 40 days of fasting. That as Christian people, we are not just people who fast, but people who feast. And I was talking with some friends, and they made the point that the feasting is sometimes harder than the fasting. <laughs> In that, it is hard to keep that momentum going, that joyous momentum, because life sort of catches up with us. Um, so it's a challenge to myself to, you know, say those alleluias with just as much gusto on the third Sunday of Easter as the first Sunday of Easter. But our passages actually help us in that celebration because over the last couple weeks and as we go forward in the season of Easter, we continue to have these appearances of Jesus after he's risen from the dead. And this is 
just one of my favorites, the Emmaus Road um, experience. N.T. Wright calls this passage the masterpiece inside the masterpiece. So the Gospel of Luke is the masterpiece. It is a piece of literary genius in addition to being a gospel and the Word of God. It is well written, it's well crafted. Luke does everything he does with intention, which is what he says from the very first verses. I gathered these things together to make an account for you, Theophilus, so that you could know what has happened, who Jesus is and what he has done. And Luke gives us some things that are not in any of the other gospels, including Mary's song, the Magnificat, and this encounter with these two disciples on this road. It is a masterpiece inside the masterpiece. Masterpieces, whether of art or music or sculpture, are those works that reward further engagement. That every time you encounter a masterpiece, there's something more to get from it. Um, This was actually part of my doctoral work, thinking about what is the nature of a masterpiece and what is it to encounter a masterpiece. And this is one of those things that I learned um, is that every time you come to something that is classic or truly great, it gives you more and more. And truly, the more that you pay attention to it, the more it gives to you. And even this passage, as many times as I've read it, as many times as I've thought about it, as many times as I've taught it, there was something new for me even this week as I was studying. And the thing that stood out to me this week was this verse. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This whole passage is about seeing. It's about perception, growing in knowledge and perception. But part of what Jesus is doing for these disciples is their eyes have to remain closed to a certain extent before they can see truly. There's a journey that they have to go on in order to come to that table and have him made known to them the breaking of the bread. Because Jesus here is still the teacher. The resurrected Jesus is still the master teacher. And he understands how he has to encounter these, his disciples, and take them on a journey of understanding and knowledge. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Kept by whom? Probably by God. God keeps their eyes closed to a certain extent so that when the epiphany comes, it's even greater. Brad, can you pull up that first painting? There's a series of paintings by a French painter who's still alive, his name's Archibus, A-R-C-A-B-A-S. There's a sequence of paintings, I wish I could show them all. I'm gonna show a couple of them in another painting too. But this is Jesus joining the disciples along the way. And I love how Jesus is in a certain sense masked. He's a stranger, and yet he's still their companion. And I don't know if you can see it, but the two disciples that are walking, they're walking in a very animated way. They're having an intense conversation that Jesus joins in with and then guides that conversation in a particular way. How is it that God teaches us? Oftentimes, we might prefer God to be way more direct than he is. We would often prefer a list of actionable advice tactics, things to do. 
But God so often prefers an indirect but nonetheless deliberate way. He comes alongside of us, like Jesus comes along these disciples, and he joins in their conversation. And really the one word that I want you to take from today is companion. That Jesus is our companion along the way. Woo! Another way to ask this question is how do you teach someone who is slow of heart? Because that's what Jesus says of these disciples. They are slow of heart. And that's an encouragement to me because I am slow of heart. That my affections have to be slowly stirred up, awakened. He can't just come directly. He has to come indirectly. It's like that line from Emily Dickinson, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Jesus was the master of that. His parables are such an example of him coming at something sideways. He is often indirect, but nonetheless deliberate. So he comes alongside of them. He's their companion. And what does he do first? First, he opens the scriptures to them. What does he say? Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That phrase, that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into glory, is the key. They're still struggling with the fact that this person that they thought was the Messiah was crucified. This is an unthinkable thought to them, that the one that God had raised up to fulfill his promises could be put to death, and put to death in this heinous way that into the Jewish mind, being hung on a tree means he was cursed. How could a cursed one be the blessed one? It is an unthinkable thought to them. And what's going on here, I think, in this passage is that they cannot see that he is the resurrected Lord until they come to see that he is the crucified Lord. And they cannot see him as the crucified Lord until they see him as the resurrected Lord. Those two things go together. It's not one or the other, it's both together. And that's exactly what Jesus said, that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. That the two things don't cancel each other out, but that they go together. And then the astonishing claim that he demonstrates to them is that the full witness of Israel's scripture is about that reality, is about him. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, both that he would suffer and that he would be risen from the dead. The crucified Lord is the resurrected Lord. The resurrected Lord is the crucified Lord. And what he does in this moment, we actually see the rest of the New Testament is the fruit of. Because what did the apostles do from the minute that Acts, 1, Acts 2 happens, but interpret Israel's scriptures and proclaim Israel's scriptures in light of Jesus. So what Peter does on the day of Pentecost, he stands up, he pulls from all these different Psalms. Psalm 16, didn't David say that my body wouldn't see decay and yet David died? So it must be about David's son, Jesus. They go back to the Psalms and now suddenly by the Spirit of God, 
they see resurrection all over the place. Psalm 110 becomes this favorite place that the apostles go to talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures and the one who is the Messiah. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I will make you a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We've got a whole book of the Bible that's just about that. It's called the book of Hebrews. Paul does it all the time. What Jesus does for these disciples is what he has done for his church from that moment onward, which is by his spirit, he opens the scriptures to us and points to himself. And this is why as Christians, we are two Testament Christians. The Old Testament becomes this repository of promise and prophecy and anticipation that points forward to Jesus. And we can go back to those scriptures and encounter him anew and afresh. Because I don't believe that the apostles exhausted everything in the Old Testament scriptures that's there to find about Jesus. They gave us a way of reading, a way of encountering Christ in his word. These disciples needed Jesus to join them along the way to open those things to him, and so do we. We need Jesus to be our companion by his spirit so that when we hear the word read and when we hear it, hear it proclaimed that by his spirit, he could open our eyes anew, that his word would become living and active, sharper than any two, two-edged sword. So the first thing that Jesus does is he comes alongside of them and he opens the scriptures to them. But then the second thing that he does is he breaks the bread. We can do the second painting. If you've seen a painting of the Emmaus story, this is probably the most famous one. This is called The Supper at Emmaus. It's by Caravaggio. This is the moment of recognition. Jesus is engaged in the act of blessing the bread. He takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, he gives the bread. That fourfold action. The exact same language used when he institutes his supper. This is a Eucharistic moment. He is doing for them what he did for his disciples in that upper room. He takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and he gives the bread. And what I love about this painting is the drama in it. The lighting and the way that it captures, we don't know which one is Cleopas or which one is the unnamed disciple, but one of the disciples is just ready to get out of his chair. The other one just has this moment of recognition and exclamation, and we see that the, the light is on Jesus. And one thing that's fascinating to me about this painting is that you have to look really hard to find the bread. <laughs> it's there, but you have to look really hard because Caravaggio doesn't want us to pay attention to the bread. He wants us to pay attention to Jesus, that he is made known to them in the breaking of the bread. He paints Jesus without a beard as a symbol of his new and resurrected life, that he is the second Adam come back from the grave and that he is ushering in new creation. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives. And he here again is their companion. I keep using that word, 
companion. The word literally means someone who breaks bread with you. Calm with pan bread. Companion, the one who breaks bread with you. See, Jesus is our companion along the way, but he is more than that. He's the resurrected Lord. He's made known to us in the breaking of the bread. Third painting. This is the last in the sequence by Archippus. It's called Disappearance. As soon as he's made known to them in the breaking of the bread, he disappears. But so do they. Because they don't stay there. They go back to Jerusalem. David Lyle Jeffrey, um, writing about this painting, this one says, the viewer sees and feels the presence as real, all the more so because Christ's sudden absence and the scrambled exit of the disciples to look for him in the magnificent starry night. As the white space and the jigsaw puzzle show, not everything is explained. The viewer must piece things together both inside and outside the frame of the story. The open door and starry night after the communion at Emmaus evoke a desire to re-enter the presence. <clears throat> He's made known to them in the breaking of the bread and then he disappears. And I love this knocked over chair. It sort of connect the two paintings in my mind. <laughs> the, the disciple got out of the chair, the chair fell down, Jesus disappears and they run out after him. That outward movement to go back to Jerusalem and to declare the resurrected Lord is the missional move that they make and also the missional move of the church. That we gather in the Lord's name, in his presence, to hear him unfold himself to us in his word and then to meet him at the table so that he's made known to us in the breaking of the bread and then we go out. And what these disciples did is what we are called to do. They found the 11 and those who were with them saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They go and tell the good news. We've seen him. It's true. He's risen. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. They go and tell their story. And this painting for me is so important because we talk about seeing and beholding and all those kinds of things, but there's a tension in that because we don't really see see. Not in the way that they did. But we're left in the same position that they are, is that Jesus comes to us and he makes himself known in the breaking of the bread. And then we are called to move outward to go back to Jerusalem to declare the resurrected Lord. Let me read that phrase again that David Lyle Jeffrey said. The open door and starry night after the communion in Emmaus evoke a desire to re-enter the presence. We want to meet him again and again and again. We want him to be our companion along the way who breaks the bread and makes himself known to us. The story ends with that incredible phrase, he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. In my own story, I call the Emmaus Road uh, 
passage, the why I am Anglican passage, um, because of that twofold action of the word and the table going together. That it's not just the word on its own and it's not just the table on its own, but it's those two things in relationship with each other, mutually nourishing and mutually informing each other. Because as amazing as this phrase is, that he's made known to them in the breaking of the bread, what do they say before that? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? The table, the encounter at the table helps them understand what happened before. This is what you were doing. This is what you were saying. They needed both to inform the other. He was made known to them in the breaking of the bread and did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures. They go together. And so this is a picture of the church's worship. What Christ has given us as a means to encounter him, the means by which he comes alongside of us as our companion. He gives us his word and he gives us the sacrament as a way to encounter him, to know his presence, to be filled with his life. Our mission statement is summed up in those two words, behold and become. And there's two things that this story helps me understand about that. That beholding is a process. They don't see him when he's just their companion along the way until later. They come to understand later. But it didn't mean he wasn't with them along the way. Beholding is a process. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him so that he could teach them, so that he could unfold to himself who he was. The second thing, though, is that this story reminds me that there is something more fundamental than our beholding. And it is this, that we are beheld. God beholds us so that we can behold him. He pays attention to us. He joins us along the way. He is our companion. Our seeking and our beholding matter, but they are only both possible because of God's prior movement towards us in love, because he's beheld us, because he has adored us. And I want to go back to a moment in the story and end with this. These disciples, they don't know exactly what they're doing, but they invite him in. In the story, they invite him in. He does a sneaky Jesus move and says, oh, I'm just keeping going. And they're like, oh, come join us for dinner. But that action is so important. Because we all have to engage in that act of hospitality, whereby we ask the companion to join us, to come in, to sit with us, to dine with us, so that that moment of encounter can happen. We can't keep him outside. We have to bring him inside. They invite him in, and so must we. And in that moment when they invite him in, this is a great phrase from Augustine, <laughs> the guest becomes the host. Jesus is invited in as a guest and he becomes the host at the table. And that's the truth because Jesus is not just our companion. 
He does walk alongside of us, but he's always in front of us too. Because he's the resurrected Lord. His life is our life. His defeat of death becomes our defeat of death. We can't do it without him. So I leave you just with those thoughts. That beholding is a process. So if you're not seeing right now, that's okay. Maybe God's up to something. (laughs) Maybe he's joining you along the way and you just can't see it yet. It takes an enormous act of faith to believe that sometimes. But it's true. Beholding is a process. Second, before we ever behold, we are beheld. And third, we have to invite him in so that the guest can become the host. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that though the flower fades and the grass withers, your word does not pass away. Um, And I thank you that you are our companion, that you join us along the way. And I pray for those who are in that experience or that moment where you feel like a stranger along the way. I pray for this process of beholding for each of us as individuals and for us as a community. Um, And I pray, Lord, that we would be those who continually invite you in so that you might become the host. And as we come to your table, Lord, all we can ask is that you be made known to us in the breaking of the bread. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.